0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This is Fresh Air, and I'm Tanya Mosley. Let's go to New York
1: City. The year is 1948, and one of the most opulent parties of the summer is underway on the 65th floor of the Rockefeller Center, inside of the exclusive Rainbow Room. Billie Holiday graces the stage, singing a stirring rendition of Strange Fruit to some of New York's most powerful elite, who are for the first time rubbing shoulders in midtown Manhattan with civil rights activists and members of the Black Upper Echelon to raise money for the National Urban League. The hosts are Wynne Rockefeller, grandson of oil magnate John D. Rockefeller, and Molly Moon, a black woman from Mississippi known as the Great Dame of Harlem Society. Never heard of Molly Moon? Historian Tanisha Ford hadn't either until she happened upon her a few years ago. And Ford's new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement, Tanisha Ford shares the untold story of Molly Moon, known as one of the most influential women of the civil rights era. As president of the fundraising arm of the National Urban League, Moon is credited with raising millions to build economic and racial equality in America. Tanisha Ford is a historian, cultural critic and author. She is a professor of history, biography, and memoir at the Graduate Center, CUNY. And Tanisha Ford, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. You know, this book about Molly Moon, it's so interesting, but really we get to see through her story, what was this secret web of money and power and influence, all of which bolstered the civil rights movement as we know it. How did you come to learn Molly Moon's story and ultimately decide to write about it? I was actually doing research
2: for another project, and I stumbled across the name Molly Moon in the newspaper clippings of the early 1960s, and I just loved the sound of her name, Molly Moon. I loved the way my mouth had to form to say her name, and she was hosting this amazing beauty pageant that celebrated the beauty of Black women. And of course, in this era in America, that wasn't necessarily common for our beauty to be recognized and celebrated in that way. And so I just tucked her name in the back of my mind and thought, I'm going to write something about this woman. And as I kept this file of documents about Molly Moon that I would collect periodically, I realized that there was a true story to be told here. One that made people aware of this great leader of the civil rights movement who had fallen out of the narrative, but also one about fundraising and how beauty pageants and galas
1: and other social events were actually fundraisers for the movement. Right. You know, this is something I never really thought about is um, how the movement was funded. But your book illuminates is that voter registration drives, breakfast programs, legal campaigns, all of this costs cash. I mean, it's an obvious thing that we never really focus on when we're talking about that era. It sounds like you had that epiphany, too. I did, but admittedly, much later than I would have
2: thought or that one might think, given that I am a scholar of the civil rights movement era, I realized once I started to follow Molly Moon across the black press that there were always dollar amounts attached to these stories about her. She raised $25,000 at this event. She raised $30,000 at another event. And I started to realize, oh my goodness, these events are fundraisers. But because so much of the historiography or the way that we study the civil rights movement did not focus on the money, I didn't even realize that it was a blind spot in my own work, that I had not been talking about the money, that historians don't talk about the money, that as a nation, we don't talk about how exactly we fund racial justice. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's multifold. One reason is because... Money sounds dirty when we think about justice and freedom and liberation and democracy. We don't think that those things should cost money. Mm. Another element of this, of course, is that when we start following the money, we might not like what we find out. Mm. Maybe we might find that some of our leaders whom we respect have capitulated to the interests of the white capitalist elite, taking money from them. You know, we might find that People that we look to to represent the grassroots also have had to take money from some unsavory sources. And people don't really want to talk about those things. You know, there's been a way in the public that we have lionized the leaders of the civil rights movement, people like Martin Luther King, for example, who are worthy of our respect and admiration I have found that once I started to turn my attention to the money, that this story humanizes these people even Mm -hmm. more, and
1: it makes the stakes of movement building all the more clear. Well, let's get into it. The book is called Our Secret Society because Molly literally helped create a secret financial network of sorts, which included, as you mentioned, wealthy, rich, white donors, wealthy black elites, and everyday working class Black people. And one way she did this was through parties. Everyone knew her name. Everyone wanted to be invited to these parties. Can you describe what some of these parties were like and, and who were those in attendance? These parties, by all accounts, were
2: fabulous. Her signature event was the Beaux Arts Ball. She would host that event every year since 1940. And It was an event that started off in Harlem at the Savoy Ballroom and then moved in the 1960s, the early 1960s, to the Astoria Hotel in Midtown, New York. And these events brought together all sorts of people, as you mentioned, everybody from weary subway workers and domestic laborers to titans of industry, including the Rockefeller family, People like Billie Holiday, Catherine Dunham at one point was a sponsor for the event. I even found in the records where she had invited the Duke and Duchess, um, the former King of England, and Wallace Simpson to be judges for the costumed affair portion of the Beaux-Arts Ball.
1: Oh, this is so interesting. Okay, so Molly founded the fundraising arm of the National Urban League. She founded it in 1942. And then there were these guilds that were formed all across the country. What kinds of programs were, were these guilds funding? They were funding everything from voter registration
2: drives to things like the March on Washington, but also Black youth programs. Molly Moon's degree was in pharmacy. And before she went into social work, which became, you know, her long-term career, she had a dream of becoming a biology teacher. So she was deeply invested in what today we call STEM. And so a lot of the funds went toward funding Black youth Um, for them to have educational programs, and then other things funded like journalists. So their fundraising efforts funded a wide array of social justice-oriented, racial equality-minded events that have had a deep impact on community
1: building in the African-American context. She played such a big role as you're laying out here, but by today's standards, she kind of, she's relatively
2: unknown. When when we think about how grand narratives of U.S. history are told, a lot of the source material that is used in those grand mainstream narratives of American history do tend to focus on mainstream publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe. But Molly has even fallen outside of African American treatments of this history. And that for me was reflective of a larger, a larger issue or a larger historiographical, if you will, dynamic. And so I think part of it was that, especially once we get to the 1990s, African-American historians and historians of the African-American experience are really focused on telling the stories of the Black working poor, Mm. people who had definitely been neglected in the American narrative. Mm. And so because of that bottom-up interest, people like Molly Moon were kind of lumped into a Black middle-class elite, and the assumption was that women like her would have been committed and deeply invested to respectability and that... They might have looked down upon the black working classes. And so there was just not a focus on these women. So I wanted to use the everything that that history from the 1990s onward has taught us about race and class in the United States to say there's a different way that we can tell a story about Molly Moon that doesn't really just lump her into this black elite without having a critical question or conversation around what it meant to be middle class in the Jim Crow era. It wasn't as cut and dry as the story of, like, respectability politics would suggest.
1: I want to talk about this party that I mentioned earlier with Wynne Rockefeller. It broke the Jim Crow color line. And I want you to describe how big of a deal this party was and, and really what the breaking of that color line signified.
2: When Winthrop
1: Rockefeller
2: decides to sign his name on the invitations for this National Urban League summer party alongside Molly Moons, these two made a very conscious decision. Winthrop knew that signing his name meant that he was saying that African Americans were on equal grounds as white Americans, and as such, they deserved access to every venue that white Americans had access to. And of course, the Rainbow Room was this very elite space where, you know, the white moneyed elite socialized and partied. And in 1948, the Rainbow Room had just reopened to outsiders after the war, So for Winthrop and Molly to decide, we're going to take these African-Americans, dress in their finest, and we're going to march and sashay into the Rainbow Room, rarefied air in Midtown Manhattan in 1948. It was quite the spectacle. And Molly was very conscious of the optics of this. And, you know, having somebody like a Billie Holiday in the room performing, Um, Billie Holiday, of course, deeply committed to the cause of racial justice, Molly and Winthrop
1: sharing a table. Well, how did did Wynne Rockefeller and Molly Moon actually meet? And what were his motivations? I mean, he was a rich socialite who could support anything.
2: Molly and Winthrop met sometime after World War II, so I would presume around 1945 or 1946. At this point, Molly has established the National Urban League Guild at the behest of Lester Granger, who is the executive director of the National Urban League at the time and also one of Molly's really good friends and comrades. And Winthrop has returned from the war. He's reestablished himself in New York and has made it a point to separate himself from his family and their politics, which he sees as far more conservative than his own, even though his father and grandfather, too, supported racial justice, racial equality in various forms. Winthrop becomes the most outspoken of his generation. And of the Rockefellers more broadly because he doesn't believe in just tossing money down from the Rockefeller's gilded cage. He believes that I'm going to be on equal footing and organize alongside The African-American community. Mm. And so they meet, have a common vision. In fact, I found mentions of of Winthrop being at Molly Moon's house at planning meetings for the National Urban League Guild. So he was very hands-on and he saw the National Urban League as a platform that he could support and very publicly throw his money behind, but also invest that kind of sweat equity by being present and invested in the planning of these events and fundraisers and spreading the word of the good work of the Urban League.
1: This wasn't all positive, though. I mean, this goes back to something that you you mentioned earlier around um, concerns about aligning with wealthy white liberal um, elites. You write about this one journalist, Lillian Scott, who represented a younger generation of black radicals using newspapers to publicly challenge capitalism and wealthy white liberals. This sounds really familiar. I mean, it sounds so current day, even talking about it. And she, Lillian Scott, had a particular focus on Wynne Rockefeller and his support of Molly Moon. Yes. And that's why Lillian Scott is such an important figure,
2: because she does represent that generation of younger, more radical black journalists who are saying, hey, wait a minute. We have to remember that the wealth that the Rockefellers and others of these elite families who are clamoring to support the National Urban League have amassed has come from a system of slavery. Right. So the term that we use to describe this as racial capitalism. And Lillian Scott was saying we should not be seduced by the fancy gowns and invitations to party in the Rainbow Room because African Americans, by and large, are still living in abject poverty in this nation, and a fancy party is not going to undo generations of economic disparities. So she really was on the the Rockefeller beat. I mean, she would use Mm. her column in the Chicago Defender to talk about these issues of race and class and gender and and really discuss them in a complex way, but using the cheeky form of the society
1: pages to do it. Well, there's this one very salacious bit to me once when Rockefeller and Molly started being photographed at these fundraising events together, people basically started losing their minds. There were all these rumors about them possibly having an affair, which, of course, is a sign of the times, but people just couldn't wrap their heads around a Black woman having a platonic professional relationship with a wealthy white man, especially in the name of social and racial justice. But, I mean, as you lay out in the book, this kind of gossip talk was also pretty dangerous, because the time period, even for rumors to be out there of an interracial affair, it was just dangerous.
2: There were so many rumors, so many rumors, and I was less invested in trying to discover did this really happen? Were they really having an affair? As a historian, I was more interested in providing context for why there would have been so much fodder around this and what were the stakes, you know? And and what I discovered was that people did, they struggled with this idea that Molly Moon just had that much influence, that you know she could just be doing this off of her own brilliance as in strategy as a fundraiser um it's also important to remember that both winthrop and molly were married and there were implications for their spouses who were thrown in the press as people started to question them and the nature of their relationships and um but then there was also this larger racial context i mean we're talking about the late 1940s lynching is at a high there are conversations about the fears of miscegenation and race mixing. Black people are being killed for even looking at white people, right. much less being perceived as having sex with them. And I think the most poignant and heartbreaking example of this is the
1: lynching of Emmett Till, a teenager in Money, Mississippi. Did it impact any in any way the way that she moved or operated business? Because, of course, she was in New York, so she wasn't in the South, but that didn't change the stakes. It didn't change the stakes. And I wasn't able
2: to find things that where she specifically talked about this. Molly used the press very strategically and At this time, she didn't respond to much publicly. So there's no newspaper article, at least that I've been able to find, where she discusses this in any detail. Nor could I find any mentions of her, you know, personal thoughts about this in her correspondence. So I was able to just try to triangulate based on what I know about her and how she thinks about these issues. And to me, it seems like she largely would have seen it as part of the cost of doing business as a black woman power broker in this time period, that this was part of the the sacrifice in committing herself to the movement. When we start talking about people like Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks, we think that the sacrifice that they make is about, you know, being imprisoned, right, being arrested for their protest, or in Martin Luther King's tragic case, of course, right. being mm-hmm. assassinated, you know. But when we start to think about the questions about the money and the fundraising efforts, the stakes or the sacrifices look different, but they all come with their own cost. And so Molly definitely would have weighed those costs. But from the 1940s onward, she seemingly doubles down on her commitment to the Black Freedom
1: Movement and to fundraising. So she's, she's undaunted, Our guest today is Tanisha Ford, author of the new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns and Foster. To Stearns and Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama, Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. Climate change fuels hurricanes.
1: China China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR
0: podcasts. More voices. All ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I'm Fresh Air's Seth Kelly, here to promote another bonus episode, only available for our Fresh Air Plus supporters.
0: I felt I had to prove my worth all the time, you know, and that, that I wasn't allowed to make bad decisions or make mistakes or to be wrong, that I had to be right, you know, every, every time. I've always been so frightened of being wrong.
3: This week, Fresh Air producer Heidi Saman joins me in another special producer postcard. Heidi shares why Terry's Moving 2018 interview with actor Andre Holland has stuck with her. Discover why for yourself at plus.npr.org.
1: This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley and today my guest is Tanisha Ford, author of the new book Our Secret Society: Molly Moon and the glamour, money and power behind the civil rights movement. Ford is a historian and cultural critic whose work centers on the experiences of Black women. She's a professor of history, biography, and memoir at the Graduate Center, CUNY. Her previous books include Dressed in Dreams, A Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion, and Liberated Threads, Black Women, Style, and the Global Politics of Soul. Tanisha, I want to dig in a little deeper into some of the real tension during this time period Black people were becoming more outspoken in their criticism of organizations like the National Urban League and the NAACP for their dependency on white money. And I was really surprised that this was talk back in the 40s. I thought respectability especially and to some degree being accommodationist was a kind of dominant belief system for Black America during that time. And that's what I love unpacking in this book and
2: really reimagining how we should study this era, not all Black people were invested in notions of respectability. And so I like to think of it as Black dignity. You know, Black people wanted to be seen as fully human and wanted to do more than survive. You know, they wanted to thrive. And so you have these conversations around Black dignity, about the the future of the Black community post-World War II, until so a lot of African Americans, even middle class and upper class Black Americans, were really skeptical of taking money from what I call the Park Avenue elite. At that time period, so much wealth was really concentrated in New York City, and the Urban League And even the NAACP had strategies to work alongside these people and to accept their money. And what African-Americans feared was that that kind of influence would then steer the movement away from the issues that African-Americans cared about and thought were central to community building in the mid-20th century and steer them more toward issues that felt safe for white Americans. And a lot of that conversation was about segregation. And the rate at which segregation should happen. So the black press really started to plant stories across the various newspapers in the country about the dangers of accepting this money. Mm. And even Ebony Magazine ran a story saying... We should reject this money and instead rely upon the black millionaire class that's flourishing after the war and that they should be our philanthropists so we don't have to, you know, beg at the feet of the Rockefellers anymore. So you have a figure like Molly Moon who's... In between these two debates, I mean, she's a political insider within the National Urban League, and so she can see the moves that the Urban League is making, although in many ways clandestinely, to accept this money, but to not let the black community know the extent to which they're accepting this money. But she's also interacting and interfacing with everyone from working-class to upper-class African-Americans at the events that she's hosting. So she has to figure out, how do I keep my eyes on the prize, which is Black freedom, without alienating
1: either group? Okay, so two thoughts. Number one, I feel like what you're laying out here sounds so reminiscent, especially during the uh, What happened after George Floyd was murdered in 2020, we were having lots of discussions around white philanthropy and money coming from the white elite uh, to the cause. And then also thinking about that Ebony article, how realistic would it have been back then for black communities to self-fund their own movements? How, how many black millionaires were there actually? Was there an expectation, too, that they would contribute to the greater cause? I was
2: writing this book in the most depressing moments of the COVID-19 pandemic and was watching unfold many things that I was seeing unfold in my archive. Mm. And one of them was this question about crisis philanthropy. You know, at times of extreme racial unrest, where does the money come from and should we accept it? And what are the stakes? for our community in accepting that money. And one of the concerns then that remains now is that there shouldn't be an accumulation of wealth, right, to begin with, but that even funneled into movements that oftentimes that creates a kind of stagnation where the money isn't being then redistributed to the communities that need it most. So there is like the a structural issue in terms of how we even approach fundraising for the movement, who gets the money, and what kind of time period is considered, you know, acceptable for the money to be redistributed to black communities. So that concern was definitely there. The other piece of that is, well, once the moment passes, if we have become dependent upon this, you know, white hand of philanthropy. Then what do we do then Mm -hmm. when white people decide that they no longer want to give this money to our cause? And this is another thing that we've seen play out in the present moment, where in 2020, there was a surplus of money being given to organizations like BLM and the National Urban League and the NAACP, who received even more money than BLM did, Mm -hmm. to be clear. Um, But it was... Well, what happens in 2021, 2022, 2023, where we start to see a retrenchment in terms of the kinds of money that's being given to racial justice? It's almost to the point now where saying racial justice is like a a dirty word, even Mm -hmm. though it was so in vogue just a couple years ago. And so this was the concern of African-Americans in the 1950s as well that we have to create our own power base, our own economic base. And so what they were proposing was that we should look to black millionaires to be at the vanguard of this. At this time, there were only a dozen black millionaires, though. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really even sustainable um, to begin with. But I could understand the hope behind it, right? That we would like to believe that we have come up from slavery and now have enough Black millionaires that we have more money than small nations as a collective and
1: that we should be able to rely upon our own money. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is Tanisha Ford, author of the new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. We'll be right back after a break. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail
3: and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration.
0: Been so long since I've been free.
3: Listen to Track Change from
1: Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network.
3: NPR's editorial independence and integrity is non-negotiable. It's the reason why so many listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup. You'll get analysis and insight from the world's best correspondents. Listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup, only from NPR.
1: This is Fresh Air, and today we're talking to historian and cultural critic Tanisha Ford, Ford is a professor of history, biography, and memoir at the Graduate Center, CUNY. She's written a new book titled Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement, which explores the fundraising efforts that supported the civil rights movement, luncheons, galas, card parties, and traveling exhibitions, and the woman behind some of the most significant efforts, Molly Moon, founder of the fundraising arm of the National Urban League. Tanisha, Molly Moon was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 1907, and she earns a degree in pharmacy in 1928. And you mentioned that she was a pharmacist for a short period of time, but how did she go from pharmacist to left-wing activism? Molly Moon was part of a delegation of African Americans
2: who were recruited by Louise Thompson who was acting at the behest of the Communist Party USA to travel to Moscow to film a racial propaganda movie called Black and White that was to expose the horrors of Jim Crow segregation in the United States by focusing on the labor exploitation of black workers across the US south and prior to Traveling to Moscow in 1932, Molly had formed relationships with members of the Harlem Renaissance like Langston Hughes, Dorothy West, Claude McKay, County Cullen, Zora Neale Hurston. In fact, she and Zora Neale Hurston and Dorothy West all lived in the same apartment building Hmm. on 66th Street in New York City. And so when they are asked to join this cast— Mostly of people who have no acting experience but have a deep commitment to racial justice, Molly definitely goes. Most of the people on this trip are not communists. They don't have an official affiliation with the Communist Party. But they are new Negro intellectuals who are, are deeply inspired by the art and politics of the moment. They're looking for solutions to economic exploitation in the Depression era. And it really becomes an opportunity for them to develop as thinkers.
1: Molly was married to Henry Moon, who was a journalist and later public relations director for the NAACP. She actually met him during that um, the time in Moscow as part of that cast uh, for Black and White. As we learn from you, Molly is a force. I mean, she was the one in all of the newspapers and magazines and the wheeling and dealing. Did that at all impact her marriage? By all accounts that I could uncover, Henry was a
2: very supportive husband. And, you know, this is a man who in the 1930s, before the roughest years of the Great Depression, was really positioned as one of the brightest black public intellectuals of the day. I mean, mm. he was like a ta Coates of the 1930s. And, you know, once he his career took a turn during the Depression, you know, Molly was able to establish a a more public career in certain ways than Henry was. She had the charisma. She had the charm. She was stylish and vivacious. People loved to talk about her. The camera loved her. I mean, just her image is everywhere in the archive. But Henry had very progressive gender politics. I mean, this is a man who wrote very publicly about, you know, denouncing respectability, that respectability won't save us. He was saying a version of that in the 1940s. And he also felt that, you know, black women were equal to black men, and he wanted to be in a partnership with a black woman who had a strong sense of self and who was ambitious. And I think that this is why
1: Molly chose to marry Henry. For all that you're telling us about Henry Moon and, of course, Molly, There still was a lot of pushback against them and backlash against their approach. There's this book written about them that damages Molly's reputation. She's about 60 around this time. And there's this novel called Pink Toes. Tell us a little bit about it. Pink Toes. Yes, Pink Toes was
2: actually written by Chester Himes, who, I must say, was Henry's first cousin. <laughs> you know, so Henry and Chester grew up together in Cleveland, Ohio. And when Chester is released from prison and he's establishing himself as a writer, Molly and Henry allow Chester to move into their home in Harlem. And so Chester's living with them. They're introducing him to all of the black literary luminaries of the day, Ralph Ellison, so on and so forth. He's meeting all of his his idols, Richard Wright, you know, he's mm. meeting these people in the moon's home. And so how does he how does he pay them back, you know, by saying, Every note that I took while living in your house, I'm gonna use it to write this satire about. Fundraising and white philanthropy, and um, black complicity in this—you know—white-led effort to fund racial justice, and I'm going to call it pink toes, which was a colloquial term used to describe interracial sex. Mm. So, in essence, he's saying that Molly Moon is in bed with the white elite.
1: Gosh, he even the main character's name is Mamie Mason. Yeah, so the M- Mamie Mason, Molly Moon. Like, you don't have to
2: look very hard to make the connections here. It was really a damning portrait of Molly Moon um, that damaged her reputation at a time when the movement was shifting, when the the civil rights movement, as we've come to frame it as this movement about nonviolent direct action,
1: was folding into a movement about Black power. Yeah, as I mentioned, she was about 60 years old at the time that this was published. How did this impact her?
2: Well, in many ways, at this point, Molly has already been marginalized by Whitney Young in the movement when the much younger Whitney Young comes into the the organization as its leader he then wants to staff the national headquarters and the affiliates with people of his own choosing mm-hmm. so you know, young, militant-minded black social workers, um, policy um, experts, um, people who are heading up black think tanks and so forth. And so because Molly represented that older generation of the movement, she doesn't have the same place in Whitney Young's Urban League as she did in Lester Granger's Urban League. But what she does is that she pivots her attention to focus on the issues of Black women. She reactivates her membership in Alpha Kappa Alpha, the sorority she joined when she was an undergraduate at Meharry. She ends up joining what will become the Coalition of 100 Black Women. And she, in many ways, becomes the face of a Black women's movement. And it's these same Black women who really come to her aid as the movement begins to shift, and she's further marginalized by the male leadership of the National Urban League. It's the young Black women, the journalists, the, you know, civic leaders, who really take Molly Moon and adopt her as a foremother who is really carved a path for them to be able to do the brilliant civic work that they're engaged in as we move from the mid-1960s
1: into the 1970s and 1980s. Is there a lesson that you took away from Molly Moon's life and her experiences and the work that she's done um, that you feel is an urgent message that we need to hear or know today? I realized just how brave
2: this woman had to be to... Be so unapologetically herself in a time period where black people were being persecuted daily for the color of their skin. And if there's anything that I think Molly Moon would want us to know, it is that every human being on this earth deserves to be able to walk in the fullness of themselves. In the fullness of their humanity, that if we could just step outside of ourselves long enough to recognize the suffering of someone else and be willing to sacrifice something of ourselves, whether that be a small dollar financial offering, whether it be volunteering our time, whether it be calling a congressperson, that if we were willing to do that for someone else, then we have the
1: power to make the kind of change that we need to see in this world. Tanisha Ford, thank you for this conversation and thank you for this book. Thank you for having me. Tanisha Ford is the author of the new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. Coming up, Maureen Corrigan reviews Alice McDermott's new book, Absolution. This is Fresh Air. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday.
3: You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. The news can be disorienting, and it can be really hard to remember how we got here. That's why we started the Throughline Podcast. Every week, we take you on a cinematic trip into the past to better understand the present. Listen now to the Throughline Podcast from NPR.
1: This is Fresh Air. Alice McDermott, who won the National Book Award for her 1997 novel, Charming Billy, has come out with her ninth novel. It's called Absolution, and our book critic Maureen Corrigan says... It leaves the old neighborhood far behind.
3: Humility is the one virtue you wouldn't expect Alice McDermott's characters would need to learn. Her characters are almost always Irish-American, Catholic, working class, in short, dependably meek and self-deprecating. But in McDermott's new novel, Absolution, humility, both on an individual and a national level, is the virtue that's in catastrophically short supply. Absolution also teaches me a lesson in critical humility. Surveying McDermott's body of work in a review I wrote a couple of years ago, I pronounced that she steadfastly remains on native grounds, meaning that her stories pretty much take place in the outer boroughs of New York City. Brooklyn or Queens, or for those characters who've moved on up, Long Island. Absolution, however, transports McDermott's signature characters to Vietnam, circa 1963. It's futile to predict where a great writer's boundless imagination will take us, and as Absolution affirms, McDermott is a great writer. Absolution takes the form of memories shared between two American women some 60 years after they left Saigon. Tricia Kelly was a shy newlywed in 1963, a parish kindergarten teacher who went to Vietnam with her husband Peter, a civilian engineer on loan to Navy intelligence. As Tricia recalls, Back in those days, her real vocation was to be a helpmeet for my husband. That helpmeet role includes, of course, becoming a mother. But while in Vietnam, Tricia miscarries the first of many pregnancies. Now old and widowed, Tricia is contacted by a woman named Rainy, whom she knew as a child in Vietnam. It's Rainey's mother, Charlene, now deceased, around whom the two women's memories orbit. Charlene was a strawberry blonde dynamo, a corporate wife who conscripted lesser females like Tricia into her volunteer army of do-gooders. Reflecting on Charlene's charisma, Tricia says, I knew her type. I'd met enough girls like her at school. They all had that ability to enlist the help of strangers without seeming helpless themselves. Within 24 hours of meeting Charlene at a garden party in Saigon, Trisha finds herself folded into Charlene's little group of women who brought small gifts to the hospitals and various orphanages, candy and crayons, baseballs, baby dolls. Coincidental with our own year of Barbie, Charlene has the brainstorm to hire a local seamstress to make traditional Vietnamese outfits for imported Barbie dolls and sell them at a high markup to Americans looking for a unique gift to send home. The proceeds will be plowed back into Charlene's various charities, which include an outlying colony for Vietnamese afflicted by leprosy, the site of a heart-of-darkness-type epiphany for Tricia. Without once lapsing into heavy-handedness, McDermott suggests parallels between the insistent charitable interventions of Charlene and her crew and the growing American military intervention in Vietnam. Reflecting the mood of Her Saigon in 1963, Tricia recalls that the cocoon in which American dependents dwelled was still polished to a high shine by our sense of ourselves and our great good nation. McDermott also deftly recreates another cocoon, the Catholic one, in which Tricia and her husband live. Peter, in particular, believes that the JFK presidency and the shoring up of the regime of Catholic President Diem in Vietnam are part of a cosmic plan. It comes as no surprise when Tricia tells us that she eventually learned Peter had been working for the CIA, or Catholic Intelligence Agency, as it's playfully dubbed, because Who better than Catholics understood the threat of godless communism? But what draws out McDermott's most incisive, compassionate writing is the expat world of the wives. Tricia, at the very beginning of the novel, describes her rituals of grooming and dressing for the daily round of luncheons, lectures, and cocktail parties. Here's but a snippet. Stocking slipped over the hand and held up to the light. We were careful to secure the garter just so. Too close to the nylon risked a run. You cannot imagine the trouble suggested in those days by a stocking with a run. The woman was drunk, careless, unhappy, indifferent to her husband's career, even to his affections, ready to go home. McDermott possesses the rare ability to evoke and enter bygone worlds, pre-Vatican II Catholicism, pre-feminist movement marriages, without condescending to them. She understands that the powerhouses can dominate the helpmeets. She also understands that playing God is the role of a lifetime, and every human actor should turn it down. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown
1: University. She reviewed Absolution by Alice McDermott. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, Adam Kinzinger talks about reaching his goal of serving in Congress and then turning against what he describes as the fanaticism of the hardcore in his own party. After serving as one of two Republicans on the House committee investigating the January 6 attack, he resigned from Congress. He has a new memoir. I hope you can join us. And to keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salad, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nyakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley.
0: There's a lot to stay on top of on any given
3: day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's
1: news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format, so you become a mini-expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter.
3: We all hear things differently, and that can be tough when there's so much noise. This election year, we're a space to speak up and to listen. Listen to 1A for the latest on election 2024, only from NPR. For
1: the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new
0: episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR.